0: I'm sure every single one of us at some time has probably watched a processional on television. Crowds lining the streets, people shouting, uh, waving banners. Maybe it was a processional for the Queen or maybe the Pope. Uh, Most of us remember the 2010 torch run through the streets of Vancouver for the Winter Olympics. Uh, many of us probably remember, at least I very vividly remember, growing up in Edmonton in the 1980s, where we celebrated a number of Stanley Cup processionals as the Oilers paraded through the streets with thousands and thousands cheering the success that Edmonton have one you Oh, you've never experienced that. All right, well, let me move on. Uh. Some of us have even been in a processional at some times. Maybe we were part of a parade. We were in a float and we waved banners. We banged on drums in a marching band. Throughout history, processionals have been common celebratory displays when kings or leaders or warriors would come into town after they won a great victory with the crowds shouting along the sides usually with captured enemies being dragged behind them. We find a scene very similar to this in 1 Samuel. There we read that when the men were returning home after David had killed the Philistine, that's the giant, the women came out of the towns of Israel to meet Saul with singing and dancing, with joyful songs and with tambourines and lutes. And as they danced... They sang, Saul has slain his thousands and David his tens of thousands. As Jesus entered Jerusalem, it's a scene like this that everybody got to participate in, a scene that we remember once a year on what we refer to as Palm Sunday. Turn with me in your Bible to John chapter 12, and we will read a description of what that processional looked like and felt like. Verse 12, the next day, the news that Jesus was on the way to Jerusalem swept through the city. A large crowd of Passover visitors took palm branches and went down the road to meet him, and they shouted, praise God! Blessed blessings on the one who comes in the name of the Lord hail to the king of Israel Jesus found a young donkey and rode on it fulfilling the prophecy that said Don't be afraid people of Jerusalem Look your king is coming riding on a donkey's colt His disciples didn't understand at the time that this was the fulfillment of prophecy But after Jesus entered into his glory, they remembered what had happened and realized that these things had been written about him. Many in the crowd had seen Jesus call Lazarus from the tomb, raising him from the dead, and they were telling others about it. That was the reason so many went out to meet him, because they had heard about the miraculous sign. Then the Pharisees said to each other, There's nothing we can do. Look, everyone has gone after him. In the Lutheran church that I grew up in, we would enact this scene every Palm Sunday. Everyone in the service was given palm branches. The kids were all paraded into the sanctuary just like we did here. Uh, They would follow a pretend donkey, and I discovered today why we used a pretend donkey. Uh, because Pastor Jerry wasn't kidding. We actually do have a live donkey here today. And the kids were going to come in following the live donkey. But I guess the donkey got a little scared before the service. So they're all going to meet the donkey now during their time when they've been dismissed. But we would come in. There would be a pretend donkey. And someone would pretend to ride this donkey as Jesus. The kids would all follow in. And people would shout, Hosanna! Praise to the king! We'd wave our palm branches. It's interesting that I still to this day remember those services in that Lutheran church. I remember the festivity, and the color, and the energy, and the excitement, and everybody shouting out. And you may be surprised if you know anything about Lutherans, that Lutherans actually did this. It was quite charismatic. But one of the things we discover in the Bible is that crowds can also be pretty flaky. One minute a crowd can be celebrating and can be joyful. And then it doesn't seem to be very long before that same crowd can turn and become even a vicious mob. In Acts 14, we read about Paul, the Apostle Paul healing somebody. And after he heals someone, people in the crowd rush Paul. And they start yelling and crying out and even worshiping and saying to Paul, the gods have come to us in human form. Some people in the crowd, it says, thought Paul was the god Hermes. But when Paul realized what was happening and how energetic this crowd was and that the devotion of the crowd was to him, even to him as a god... He realized that this is not something he should be encouraging. And so he stopped the crowd and said, wait, what are you doing? Stop. I am not a god. I'm a man just like you. I'm simply human. And then interesting, in that same crowd in Acts chapter 14, not very long after Paul stops them and says that to him, they've just been worshiping him, then it says, then... The crowd stoned Paul and dragged him outside the city and left him thinking he was dead. How does that happen? It's very interesting. You can read about and study some uh, of, of mob mentality. How a crowd can so quickly think like a collective group. Our individuality almost gets lost. And we can go from worshipping someone as if they're a god. To then stoning them and trying to kill them. A crowd can change as quickly as your online status. Crowds are very movable. I know sometimes when I'm out in large crowds, you can almost, and, and if the crowd in any way starts to get built up with energy, and I've felt that sometimes in Africa, it just, you doesn't feel safe. You don't know where this crowd could shift in its movement. And this is precisely what happens to Jesus. A crowd shouting, blessed is the king of Israel. This is our king. They're laying down their clothes on the road. They're laying palm branches down. They're practically worshiping him. Blessed is the king of Israel. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. And then in mere days, as you will experience if you come back on Good Friday, this same crowd is saying, take him away and crucify him. We have no king but Caesar. What? I mean, it was just a few days earlier, you were saying, Hail the king, the king of Israel. And now you're saying, We have no king but Caesar? All of this raises questions. Some of the questions it raises is when that crowd was there on that Palm Sunday and they were shouting these things about Jesus, it makes you ask, what did the crowd think they were saying? How did they understand the situation? What was going on in their mind that caused them to do and say what they were doing and saying about Jesus? And then the next question that we have to ask ourselves is, Why then did they change so quickly? How could they go from praising this individual as a king to wanting him crucified and pledging allegiance to Rome within mere days? It's almost as large of a shift as trying to worship Paul as a god and then stoning him. And then it raises the question of what relevance does this have for us today? Does this story still speak to us today? Or is it merely a historical account that happened 2,000 years ago? So this morning I want to take the time that we have to unpack those few questions. And to try to look at the story in the eyes first off... Of how those people were there at that time. Understood their situation. What did Jesus mean by riding into Jerusalem on a donkey? What did he mean? And how did the people understand. What Jesus was trying to convey. See when Jesus entered Jerusalem. The people were expecting something great to happen. Nobody shows up in a big huge crowd and all energetic and pumped up if they don't think anything's going to happen. They're expecting something to happen. It says that only weeks or maybe a month or two earlier, many in that crowd had seen Jesus raise Lazarus from the dead. And Word of that got around, and so now when they hear Jesus coming to Jerusalem, who wouldn't want to see uh, the guy that has raised someone from the dead? And so many people flock to see this, this grave robber. This individual that seemed to have some kind of supernatural power. Obviously, someone who could raise the dead... And anybody that had been following Jesus throughout his ministry before that, anyone who could feed crowds of 5,000 plus with a simple meal was a powerful individual. I mean, what greater king is that? Think about what it would be like to follow a king into battle like that. You wouldn't have to worry about food provisions. Because no matter where you marched, no matter where you went, he could just snap his fingers and there's food for the entire army. And no fear of going into battle. Because guess what? You run into battle, you get your head chopped off or you get a sword through you. Once the battle's over, the king just goes through, boom, boom, boom. He just raises everybody back to life again. You're an immortal army that has infinite amounts of food. I mean, this is the king to follow. This is the guy that you want to be on his side. And so the crowds came out. In Luke's account, like in John's account of this, it says, The whole crowd of disciples began to joyfully praise God in loud voices for all the miraculous signs they had seen. See, throughout the scriptures, the miraculous signs of Jesus were always a bit of a double-edged sword. On the one hand they drew people to Jesus, but on the other hand they often drew people to Jesus for the wrong reasons. Here's our miracle worker, our our promised deliverer. Hosanna, Messiah. Hosanna in the highest, Hosanna meaning save. In fact, there's an immediacy to the word Hosanna. It means save us now. So what did Jesus mean? What was the message he was trying to convey? How did the crowds understand Jesus as he entered into Jerusalem? All of this, Jesus himself was giving this message, and the crowd correctly understood it to a point that Jesus came to bring salvation. Jesus, by riding in on this donkey, the message he was conveying the things that he had been doing up to now through his miracles, he was conveying and it all meant to display that he is the one where salvation is found. He is the Hosanna. He is the one who is going to save. The crowd also yelled, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Jesus, they recognized, came in God's name. In other words, Jesus is God's representative. What Jesus was trying to convey as he came into Jerusalem on this donkey, and what the crowd understood is that Jesus came to bring salvation. And that Jesus came as God's representative. They also said, blessed is the king of Israel. Jesus was trying to display, and the crowd understood, that this Jesus was the king of Israel. Even when Jesus was crucified, Pilate nailed a plaque above Jesus' head. And in fact, this wasn't unique for Jesus. All people that were hung on crosses had plaques put above their head. Now, what that was for is the plaque named the crime. So when you walked along, it was a deterrent. When you walked along and you saw all these people hanging on crosses above their head, you'd see thief. You'd see murderer. You'd, so you'd know. Oh, that's what happens to murderers with the Romans. That's what happens to thieves in the Rome, with Romans. You, you see all their crimes. And then what Pilate put above Jesus as his crime, king of the Jews. That was his crime. Now in some ways. It was a crime. Because anybody claiming to be king. In the time of the Romans. Was seen as an insurrectionist. Someone who was trying to overthrow the government. And another way you could see king of the Jews. Is you could see it as saying traitor. Jesus His crime was that he was claiming and the people were reading and interpreting his riding on a donkey as a claim to him being the king. The difference, however, is that when most kings entered, they entered on a horse. See, a horse has a very different picture to it than a donkey. If you would have saw the donkey that we had rented for the Sunday come down, it's, it's, it's well, it, it was even too shy to come in. It's, it's shy, it's lowly. They're strong animals, but, but the whole sense of, of a donkey is to represent peace and gentleness. A horse, if I had rented a stallion to walk into the sanctuary, um, it represents power, strength, victory, And so, yes, Jesus was coming as a king, but everything that he was representing was unlike what people thought about in regards to kings, the way he was displaying himself. Which means that Jesus came by representatively, sitting on a donkey as a king to bring peace. And who doesn't want that kind of king? In our world today, The world throughout history, Jesus' day, I remember a number of years back, I read a big fat book called The History of the World. And I remember when I got to the end of it, I said, man, the history of the world is basically the history of warfare. It was just battle after battle after you know, little things in between, but essentially it was just a a, a thousand pages of reading about war. That's the state that our world's been in since the beginning, since Cain killed his brother Abel. But Jesus came to bring peace. The crowd also recognized, uh, because they knew their scriptures, they were Jews who were steeped in the scriptures, that this was a scriptural fulfillment. A scriptural fulfillment of Zechariah 9.9, when it talks about, O daughter of Zion, see, your king is coming. Seated on a donkey's colt. So they recognized by what was happening here that Jesus fulfilled scriptural prophecy. So on the one hand, we have to give this crowd of people a lot of credit. Because Jesus came in to Jerusalem on a donkey to represent certain things. And the crowd got a lot of it. Which is why they said the things they said and did the things they did. They understood that here is the one to bring salvation. Here is God's representative. Here is the king of Israel. Here is the one that's going to bring peace. Here is the one fulfilling scripture. But here's the weird thing. It's so possible to get it and not get it at the same time. On the one hand, this crowd understood what was going on. They saw it with their own eyes. They participated in it. And yet, which as I've gone through John this time, seems to be such a continual refrain in John. This and yet. But. So many times the people get it. And then we read but or And yet, they didn't get it. Even in this passage here, after all of these things happen, we read in verse 16, at first the disciples did not understand all of this. Which means, when it was happening... At the moment, not retrospectively after, in the moment when they were there shouting all of these things, on the one hand they got it because they were communicating and saying all of this about Jesus, and yet it also says that then and there, at that time, they also did not understand what they were saying, what they were doing, and what all of this meant. It's quite possible to get and not get something at the same time. Which leads to our next question of what did the crowd think they were saying when they referred to Jesus as the blessed king of Israel? What did they think? Obviously they believe this, but what did they actually think if the text says That at first they did not understand what they were saying and if a mere few days later they so quickly turned on Jesus. At the point when all of this was happening, the people were not incorrect in their understandings of Jesus. What they were was limited. And unfortunately, limited understandings of things can often be wrong and even dangerous. One of the most dangerous people are someone that has gone to university for one year. You send. Your kid off to university, they go off to university for one year. They begin to take an introduction to physics or an introduction to biology. And so they have a limited knowledge in the subject and guess what? Suddenly they're experts. They know better than their professors. They know better than their parents. They know better than everybody. And they are dangerous. Now a lot of that danger doesn't really manifest itself into too bad of situations. But if somebody like that were to think that they had enough knowledge to now go into some field after one year of university, uh, they, and, and somehow they were allowed, they could be a real danger to their field. Limited knowledge, when it's not fully understood in a greater context of all the nuances of it, can be dangerous. And that's exactly what happened to this crowd. They had a knowledge of Jesus Christ, and certain aspects of it were true, but because it was limited, they became a dangerous crowd. A, a, a crowd so dangerous that they were willing to participate in murder. Jesus did come to bring salvation. They were right. But their understanding of salvation was limited. An understanding of salvation from the Roman oppressors. Uh, Jesus did come to raise people to life. But they thought of it in a limited sense like his raising of Lazarus. Whom we all know died again. In fact, even after Lazarus was raised, there were many of the religious leaders that wanted to kill him again. Jesus really came to save them from their greater enemies than the Romans. Enemies that I like to refer to as sin, self, and Satan. That evil trinity, I guess, if you want to refer to it that way. Jesus came to deliver us from the sin that oppresses us. From our selfishness. And our self-focus that so often steals in relationships. And to crush and defeat Satan. The one who is trying to destroy all of God's good creation. And Jesus came also to raise people to life. But not temporarily. But to eternal life. And so yes. Jesus is God's representative. But. Jesus is also God himself. He wasn't just a representative like Old Testament prophets. They were looking at God himself. Yes, Jesus is the king of Israel. But the reality is is that he is the eternal king of everyone. The whole world. Of all people, whom one day every knee will bow and every tongue confess that he is the king. Yes, Jesus was going to defeat the enemies of this world, but he was going to do it through humility and gentleness and reconciliation. And forgiveness. Even through suffering and death. Nobody got that. He was going to defeat the enemy. By turning the other cheek. He was going to defeat the enemy. Through love. And yes Jesus did fulfill. Scriptural prophecy like in Zechariah. But he actually is the fulfillment of the entire scriptures. As he said to the disciples on the way to Emmaus, everything that's been written in here has been written about me. So the crowd understood some things, but it was so small, so limited. Jesus was so much more. Which is how the next question of why a crowd could so quickly turn on their king gets answered. You see, and this is where the dangerous part comes, when our understanding of God, when our understanding of Jesus becomes too small, we can very quickly turn on God. See, they wanted a king to bring them earthly riches, they wanted a king to bring them immediate peace and salvation from the Romans, but Jesus came to bring them so much more. Something that they didn't really understand. And so, they began to become upset at Jesus not coming through on their demands for Jesus. At all levels throughout John, we see Jesus trying to point people continually to so much more. Back in John chapter 4, the woman at the well thought Jesus was talking about temporary water. And Jesus says, no, that's, that's not the kind of water I'm talking about. The kind of water I'm talking about that leads to eternal life. When Nicodemus saw Jesus in, in chapter 3 of John and, and sought Jesus out in the middle of the night... And and Jesus talked about being born again. Nicodemus didn't understand again because he thought in a limited sense. How how do you go back inside your mother's womb and, and be born again? That doesn't make any sense. But Jesus meant it in a much greater understanding. When the crowd of people came to Jesus after he had fed them miraculously, and then he started talking about, if you want to follow me, you have to eat my flesh and drink my blood. Many people in the crowd just got completely disgusted by that and left. But again, they were understanding the things that Jesus was saying in a limited sense. Even if they were to do that, you would only be fed for a day. But the kind of food Jesus was offering was food for eternal life. See, what the people wanted from Jesus continually, whether it was food or water or or a new life, was too small. And when we ask God for things that are too small, many times they become things that are harmful to us. Things that have no lasting value, but give a temporary fix or a temporary healing, but not long-term Healing. But what Jesus wanted to bring them was something that was long lasting and eternal. But because the crowd didn't get what they wanted, because they didn't get those limited things they were demanding of Jesus, very quickly they shouted, Crucify him. I thought this was the king. Just a few days ago, I was laying down my clothes and my palm branches to him. I thought this was the king coming to Israel. Now what's he doing? I don't see him defeating the Romans. I don't see him feeding me miraculous food. I don't see him fixing all the things in my life that I want fixed right now. Who needs them? I'm going to move on to somebody else. Crucify him. Let's find a new savior. A savior that I can get some better mileage out of. Not this one. Their petty dreams were being ignored by God because he had so much bigger ones in store for them. But because they didn't see from a bigger perspective, they simply shouted, crucify him. And yet, even in the midst of all that, Jesus says, Father, forgive them. Why? Because they don't understand what they're doing. They're so much clinging after such small things. And when they don't get it, they become angry at you, Father. They don't understand what they really need. They don't understand what it really means to have a new life, a life that is one with God, a life that is free because it's been forgiven, a life that no longer has to live in the constant struggle of selfishness and sin and those voices of the devil. They don't understand how much more I have for them. Forgive them, Father. Jesus is so much bigger and so much larger than we could ever imagine. It reminds me of that wonderful encounter in Prince Caspian where Lucy sees the lion Aslan who is the Christ figure in the Narnia series. And after a long absence where Lucy has not seen Aslan for a long period of time, finally Aslan comes back into the picture, and Lucy runs to Aslan, and we read, Aslan, Aslan, dear Aslan, sobbed Lucy, at last. And then Lewis writes, The great beast rolled over on his side so that Lucy fell, half sitting and half laying between his front paws. He bent forward and just touched her nose with his tongue. His warm breath came all around her, and she gazed up into the large, wise face. Welcome, child, he said. Aslan said, Lucy, you're bigger. That is because you have grown. Little one, as Len answered, not because you are, Lucy replied, I am not. But every year you grow, you will find me bigger. I love that line. See, God does not get any bigger, and yet. The more that we grow, the more that we begin to know who God is, the bigger God seems. And the grander he becomes, not because he actually gets bigger, but because we grow and understand that much more about him. It's the same with us. The more we grow, the bigger Christ appears. Not because Christ gets bigger. But because we do. That's what it means when we read in John... When it says that when all of this happened, they, the disciples, did not understand what was going on, even though they were part of the procession and they shouted these things. However, it just says a little bit after that only after Jesus was glorified did they realize that these things had been written about him, in that he had done these things. Only after he was glorified did it all of a sudden, oh, Now, as they began to, or as they continued to pursue Jesus, even after his glorification, it started to all get pieced together. This is what it means. This is who he is. This is why he did these things. That's what it means for him to be a king. That's what it means for him to be God's representative. This is what it means. It started to make sense. So what's the relevance for us today? You see, we need to realize even today that we still have a limited understanding of Jesus. Without a personal encounter with the resurrected Jesus Christ, we'll always get it wrong. First and foremost, if you are not someone who's committed themselves to the person of Jesus Christ, unless you have that relationship with him, you are not going to understand who he is and what he's done. In some ways, there is a leap and a step of faith that needs to be taken first. You can understand certain things about Jesus, but it's only when you become committed that things really begin to fit together. It takes a step of saying, there's enough there that I can trust, so that now when I trust it, now, oh, now that I know Jesus, now that I've committed Him, now everything, or at least a lot more than before, begins to make sense. But we need to realize that even after we've made that commitment, we never have fully arrived. Like the first-year university student, the most dangerous Christians are those who think they've got it all figured out. Their limited knowledge puffs up, as Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians, and they become dangerous. Because Paul reminds us, now we see but a poor reflection, as in a mirror. Then, when Christ comes back, we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, this is Paul who we're talking about. Paul, who it says, even was caught up into the third heaven. We have no idea what that even means. But Paul, who ha- even had some kind of mystical experience, some kind of transportation into the, the third heaven for some experience, he doesn't get much into that, but, but something that I'm sure probably none of us have ever experienced, even after that, Paul says, now I only know in part. Then I shall know fully even as I am fully known. We need to recognize that we we see Truth, we see reflections of the truth, but it's still only a reflection, not face-to-face. We only know in part, which should spur us on to want to continue to grow in our love and our understanding of who Jesus is. And it's what keeps us humble, and it's what keeps us gracious towards one another, when we know what we know about what Jesus is and has done, and yet we know there's so much more. Jesus is our salvation, our God, our King, our peace, and our meaning. And yet we'll spend the rest of our lives uncovering the layers of depth of what all of this means. As we worship Jesus... We remain prepared for another one of his processionals. And this time, this processional is going to be on a horse. We read in Revelation of what this processional is going to be like when John writes, I saw heaven standing open, And there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. The rider is Jesus. With justice he judges and makes war. His eyes are like blazing fire. On his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. He is dressed in a robe, dripped in blood, and his name is the word of God. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. And out of his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has written, King of kings and Lord of lords. And guess what? That is merely the best words that John can use to describe that procession. Because when it actually happens, the reality of it is going to be even greater than that description. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for all the things that you came and did. Recognizing, Lord, that so much of it was not understood until after your resurrection. Lord, we are in many ways most privileged to stand on this side of the resurrection and to be given the gift of the scriptures and the testimony of your apostles, to be able to retell us what happened, but also to be able to tell us the meaning behind it. Lord, we pray that it will not just be information that will enter our minds, but Lord, we pray that we will become committed to you, the one who came to commit himself to us. And we pray that when we become committed to you, we will become lifelong friends, followers, and disciples who never try to wrap you around our finger or put you or set you up for our agenda and then become disappointed when you don't come through. But we pray, God, that we will so orient our life around you that we are continually learning and growing into what you desire so that all becomes about you so that we can learn like Paul to become content in all situations and even see our sufferings and struggles and disappointments as something you can use to the furtherance of your plans. Because that's what matters. May we continue to worship you as we grow in our knowledge and understanding of who you are and what you've done for us. Amen.